because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. Sending in for Alex Epstein today, I'm Don Watkins, Director of Education at the Center for Industrial Progress, and with me is CIP's Head of Research, Stefan Henna. Stefan, how's it going? Hey, Don. Great, thanks. Um, I apologize in advance. I had to make a choice where to record Power Hour, either in a place where you can hear construction out of my window or in a place where you can hear my children. So if you hear any construction, you will know which choice I made. But with that, let's jump in a lot to cover this week. The major piece of news was that yesterday, we're recording this on Tuesday the 24th, was the UN Climate Action Summit. And I think the best way to summarize it is the way that Vox put it, which is they called it a, quote, disappointment, and complained that the countries responsible for the largest share of emissions that's carbon emissions, remained reluctant to sign on tougher climate targets, uh, which is a little bit ridiculous because, you know, as Vox says in a major understatement, quote, many countries are struggling to meet their already weak targets and global greenhouse gas emissions are still rising. So, you know, complaining that they're not setting more, quote, ambitious targets when they're not even coming close to meeting their targets already I mean, it's just illustrative of the whole goal here is not to actually solve a problem, but to um, basically pat yourselves on the back for agreeing to pretend to solve the problem. And then the question is, well, why aren't they doing it? If you have all of these countries that are so committed to, you know, reducing their emissions um, that they've signed on to these agreements and uh, like, why is that not happening? And, you know, I don't think the answer is going to be a big surprise to listeners of this show, but it's, I mean, it's essentially that most countries are not willing to commit suicide. Very rich countries are, you know, willing to make some amount of sacrifices, not enough to actually do anything about overall missions trends, but I mean, enough to make life worse for their citizens. And, you know, there is the potential of people making catastrophically bad decisions, But on the whole, most countries recognize that they need energy. And despite what we're told by the media and by, you know, all of these different alleged thought leaders, you can't replace fossil fuels by wind and solar in any significant scalable way. And and so countries have not done that. And to the extent that they've tried to, then, you know, they've seen higher prices and a lousier grid and so it's just it's not at all surprising that we are where we are and it's i mean the the question is like are we moving in the direction of acknowledging that and really taking seriously that uh fossil fuels are indispensable to human flourishing and of course the i mean the answer is no we're actually headed in the other direction And the actual big story of the UN Climate Action Summit was not anything the UN did or any action that anybody took on climate. It was really the speech, if you can call it that, from 16-year-old climate activist Greta Thunberg. Now, some of you asked me uh, about our take on her UN tirade, and frankly, I did not really want to talk about it. I mean, not because I don't think, oh, well, you're 16, you can't have an informed, thoughtful views, or that you can't criticize the 16-year-old's views. Um, I mean, I was 16 once, I was pretty precocious, and, you know, I did not have the forum that she did, but, like, I, I, I think, you know, it's it's only because of fossil-fueled civilization that 16 is even considered a child. Like, 200 years ago, that is, you know, you are definitely an adult. And if she wants to have a national platform or international platform, rather, then I think it's fine to engage. But the reason I don't didn't really want to go into this is like, yeah, I will argue with a a 16 year old's arguments the way way I would with any adults. Um, But I'm not going to mock a 16 year old. And there's actually not a lot else you can do with her statement because it's not an intellectual statement. It's not a statement appealing to anybody's mind. It is empty and 
it's empty moralizing uh and that's probably even too kind to put uh, you know a phrase to put on it um i mean it's basically yelling and crying and you know that's why the people who like it like it because they're sympathetic to it and the people who don't don't but i was thinking about it and i said well there's one point i haven't seen made that i think is worth making and you know thunberg's basic claim is that we should listen to the scientists so last wednesday she addressed a congressional committee and said i want you to listen to the scientists and i want you to unite behind the science and then i want you to take real action now generally when people say that what they mean is that like you have to accept the ipcc's claims at face value and as we pointed out on this show and throughout our work no you shouldn't just take them at face value like it's science you everything is open to question and needs to be questioned uh but this but even if you did take the ipcc at face value there is nothing remotely like the situation thunberg is is describing so what she describes is in in her rant yesterday was she said, people are suffering, people are dying, entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. That, that, I mean, there is nothing in the IPCC that I've seen, and Stefan, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that remotely, remotely justifies this. Like, it, it finds, from what I've seen, it's the, the IPCC says uh, that, you can't make definitive claims or it does not find evidence rather that um that floods droughts hurricanes are increasing that it is resistant to the idea that we can you know definitively tie uh extreme weather to human activity and you know if you look at what is going to be the economic impact impact of climate change it's not that the planet becomes uninhabitable but it's that you know GDP will go down a little bit from what it would otherwise be, which is far, far many more many many times what it is today, you know, in a hundred years if we did nothing to address or adapt to climate. So the idea that like listening to the scientists, even if you listen to them blindly, um, would lead to anything like what she and the people who support her advocate, I think is just it's crazy. And it, I mean, another way to put the point is what we're seeing here is a real opportunity to take the scientific high ground. Um, because I mean, one of the mistakes is just to like say, oh, climate change is a hoax or a lie. Like the, you want to think about it really precisely, which is you have CO2 as a byproduct of using fossil fuels. And you want to know what is the impact that it has on the climate. And then you can debate the magnitude. You can debate how that impacts human flourishing and then you can debate what to do about it. And, you know, there is a credible range of different views from, you know, CO2 is a pretty minor influence to the one that the IPCC holds that, you know, it's a real problem that we have to contend with over the 100 years. But I think what's not at all credible and not at all scientific is the view that the world's going to end in 12 years and that, like, you know, this is a complete collapse of civilization. Um and certainly, certainly there's nothing the science tells us that can even begin to justify Thunberg's monstrous genocidal ideas of uh, opposing economic growth and stopping our use of fossil fuels. I mean, she said explicitly, like, you know, you can all talk, all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? No, how dare you? When there's billions of people who don't have anywhere close to our standard of living. And when you think about if somebody had had that view 100 years ago, how much poverty and suffering and death you subject people to. If you're against economic growth, you are against human beings living and flourishing. And I mean, you are calling for, you are calling for mass extinction of human beings. And like that, and that is definitely something that, you know, there is not one ounce of science to justify uh and the you know the fact that that um that somebody can hold such a view and be seen as a moral inspiration really speaks to how deeply indoctrinated all of us not just children have become in this green ideal of non-impact and 
I mean, well, I'll just end on this. I think my favorite response to Thunberg uh, came from a satirical publication, The Derringer. uh, And the headline was, Experts Agree Restructuring World Economy, Best Way to Treat Child's Anxiety, which I think just about sums it up. Stefan, any thoughts uh, on Thunberg or on the climate summit as a whole? Yeah, so uh, regarding the IPCC, it's typically the case that in their reports they are much more nuanced, of course, and they talk about something like confidence or agreement summarizing the literature. So in a sense, the IPCC reports themselves are unscientifically formulated and certainly the policy uh, su- the summary for policymakers but it's they they acknowledge that the noise level in the data is so large regarding any kind of climate variable that usually you can't really you know find real trends or attribute this to any human impact so um, but i want to use it as a as to make a larger point which is it's typically the case with these advocates that they establish uh, the IPCC as sort of the authority on the science. And then because they know that almost nobody reads these uh, reports, they can then just claim whatever they want. So they typically do something like, oh yeah, this is the IPCC and the IPCC says, oh yeah, this is all human um, warming or, or, hu- or anthropogenic warming since the 1950s or something they, are, they have high confidence in that and then they talk a little bit about the details of that and then they go on and say and then there's this study x from institution y and it, it predicts this crazy sea level rise in the year 2080 and beyond and this is not like the ipcc position and, and not what the ipcc would project in any kind of uh, co2 emission scenario but then they just you know, just connect this in a way as if this was the same as a mainstream IPCC position. So that this is, you have to realize that this is a sort of propaganda tactic where they establish uh, everything they say as IPCC authoritative science, um, and that's highly questionable, but then they just go on to add their own stuff. And then with politicians and laymen advocates, you you get something even more extreme, like Thunberg said, something like a mass extinction event and so on. So this is like nonsense. This is just made up. So there are speculations about what a future scenario would mean of like two or three degrees of warming, what this would do to, you know, corals or other species and so on but this this is not uh the equivalent of just hysterically screaming the world will end and all life of it will be impossible this is this is yeah totally made up of course and but but this is very common this is not like oh greta thunberg just introduced that new tactic this is going on for years now with with advocates yeah that's really interesting uh just about the dynamic of how the IPCC becomes a springboard for any sort of scare scenario that any, you know, person cooks up. Um, and of course, anybody who says something milder, that just gets discounted as like a crank denial theory rather than the crank uh, alarmist theory. Stefan, what's your first story? So uh, in connection to the UN summit, I want to talk about the latest developments in international climate policy. And I want to use a contrast between two countries. And those are, you know, my own country, Germany, and the largest emitter of CO2 right now, which is the People's Republic of China. So Germany, uh, Germany's government just last week um, revealed its latest uh, climate policy plan. So we talked about before how Germany is failing its 2020 goals for decreasing CO2 emissions. Um, This will not be achieved. This is not achievable at this point. Um, But they now decided that they want to double down and increase their effort and become a quote-unquote leader in climate policy again. And so the the midterm goal is 55% reduction um, of CO2 emissions uh, by the year 2030 compared to the 1990 level. And, you know, we talked about how 
how uh, this 1990 level uh, is already cheating as a starting point because the Eastern German economy, of course, collapsed uh, starting in the 1990s. Um, or the heavy industry from the you know Soviet occupation uh, collapsed back then. So this is this is sort of the starting point that Germany likes to choose because it's easier to achieve. So what's in the package for by the by the German government? It's about sixty billion dollars of what Bernie Sanders would call investments. Uh, some prominent measures are taxation of CO two emissions in the transportation and heating sector which starts with about 10 euros, which is around about $11 right now um, per ton of CO2 in 2021. Subsidies of electric cars, of course, which is always uh, always in this kind of policy. Uh, then a ban of oil heating, which is very relevant. Of course, uh, Germany can experience very cold winters in many regions and uh, oil heating is still a thing here. Um, and taxes on flight tickets. Also, a cap on solar subsidies that was earlier introduced to stop uh, the escalation of electricity prices uh, will be removed. And I think we can assume that consumer electricity prices in Germany will continue to go up, although they are already at the top of uh, the European Union. Um, and I often think that the heavy-handed central planning style of this approach um, will be really hard on the citizenry and, and industry. So, you know, the German government is particularly choosing technologies. It's not just saying, oh, we want CO2 reduced and we will put some sort of incentive or cap and trade in place. They are just saying, well, we want you to use electric vehicles and not internal combustion engines. And we want, um, you know, solar and wind as uh, power generators and not coal or gas uh, and this kind of thing. And so obviously this has been already criticized by the Greens uh, for its lack of ambition. Um, they always want it faster. They always want the coal phase out faster and so on. Um, and to put things in perspective, Germany right now uh, as a whole emits about 2.5% percent of global greenhouse gas emissions compared to China 30 and America's about 15 percent. Now contrast this with uh, China's climate policy and hat tip to our friends at the Institute for Energy Research here for bringing this news item. Um, so and the data comes from a Columbia, Columbia University report which is a guide to Chinese climate policy. And this is an annual reporting by them. And they find mixed trend in the Chinese climate policy. I think that's, a, that's an understatement here. Um, so some of the findings is that while China is leading the world in renewable capacity additions, they always use the total. You know, China is a huge country and uh, a huge producer of solar panels and, and other parts for renewable technology, of course. Um, they also added 30 gigawatts of domestic coal capacity in 2018. And they are also leading the financing of uh, new coal projects in other countries. So, and China's emissions in 2018 actually went up 2.5%, which is the highest increase in the recent five years. So instead of, you know, um, making good on some promises of, of slowing down or, or doing something for the Paris climate goals, um, they are actually increasing their emissions because they are still in a growth phase. And we know why. We talked about this several times here. Um, so China is one of the countries where literally hundreds of millions of people are still waiting to consume as much energy uh, per capita as the average American or German. And so they have a lot of growth to do and they can't just build a bunch of solar panels and, and wind turbines and, and get the job done. So they are, their trend is increasing the absolute amount of fossil fuels burned. And um, so as a comparison here, Germany right now has about 45 gigawatts of coal capacity still on the grid. And China in 2018 added 30 gigawatts plus something financed abroad. So in, this, in one year, China is essentially adding as much capacity as Germany plans to retire until the late 2030s. This is, you know, and one has to marvel 
why do activists and, and policymakers focus so much on, you know, creating a really tough policy to curb emissions where it makes no sense and where it makes no difference long term? So the only really the only thing that matters right now is, you know, finding something, some technology, if you want to reduce CO2 emissions, I don't want that. But if that's the goal, you shouldn't do it in domestic policy in Germany. This is super hard. This is crippling the economy of the first mover. And this is not changing the trajectory of Chinese energy policy. So if you want to do something, you need to provide the Chinese rural population, which is still in, in poverty, with some viable, economically viable alternative. And it's, it's, really, it's really a stark contrast if you, if you just think about how quickly China and then India, you know, maybe a billion or two billion people of future emitters uh, are still waiting to, to get remotely the energy consumption that we enjoy. You know, this is, this is really, it's nonsense. The, the domestic policy in Germany is irrelevant and we can't even achieve that weak goal. As, as you said in your first story, this is a super weak goal and we can't achieve that. It's super tough. But think about how to provide all the energy that future Chinese and Indian uh, populations require. I mean, one of the things, and I'm going to talk more about this in a few minutes, that I think is just really important to stress is it's not simply that the that the catastrophists have said, like, the, you know, w we have to have these expensive, restrictive ways of reducing CO2 emissions because there's no other technological or adaptation solution that'll do it. It's that they're actively oppose anything that would address this issue, any sort of technology that would affordably capture carbon, any form of making nuclear more affordable and therefore scalable, any form of um, uh, geoengineering that could potentially at a low cost allow us to, to keep um, temperatures under control, like anything that would not involve more dictatorial power in the hands of governments is viewed as not just not a current possibility, but as something that we should be actively opposing and not looking at and restricting. And I mean, the and and so I think you get really clearly, okay, why would they be so focused on these plans in Germany that aren't going to solve any problem? And why would they be opposed to anything that would have solved the problem while incre like while maintaining freedom and increasing affordable energy? Well, it's because that would take away their very goal, which is that it's to have greater power and use that power to restrict people's ability to produce and, and above all, to produce and consume lots of energy. So my next story is really... Um, the kind of recurring theme of my news feed has been these different climate protests, big, large and small. So last week, there was the so-called Day of Action student climate protests or, you know, the students striking from school. And as many as 4 million people around the globe took place in these climate protests, though that number is almost certainly an exaggeration, but, you know, it was... Uh, it, it seems very uh, reasonable to say that it was at least in the millions. And one interesting thing to ask is, well, what exactly were they protesting? Now, a lot of the so-called protesters just skipped school because they wanted to skip school and lots of schools, you know, gave them permission to skip. So, you know, it's not, not too much of a strike if you get permission from the organization you're striking from. But in any case... Um, the a lot of the different protests would have you know co some concrete proposal that was you know insane and impossible like switching entirely to um, wind and solar by 2030 uh, but many of the organizers so i'm going to quote from the global climate strike website were explicitly and radically anti-capitalist and so the the global climate strike website was calling for uh, using the climate emergency to pursue an agenda of, quote, equity, reparations, and climate justice. 
and if you want to dig in a little bit to some of the specifics in terms of what does that even mean, here's just a few of the demands. So the first one is keep fossil fuels in the ground. So in other words, mass death. Then it's reject what they call false solutions that are displacing real people-first solutions to the climate crisis, which includes geoengineering, carbon capture, and, quote, other techno fixes, as well as biofuels. So it's, you know, uh, not just mass death, but make that mass death inevitably worse and take away any, you know, uh, hope of reducing emissions in a way that doesn't lead to mass death. And then... They say advance real solutions that are just feasible and essential, transform energy systems away from corporate controlled fossil fuels and other harmful sources such as nuclear, mega hydro and biofuels to a clean, safe system that empowers people and communities. All right. So now we've gotten rid of nuclear and hydro as well. So it's I mean, this is basically an outright energy starvation thing. And there's a bunch of other stuff that incorporates every kind of you know, anti-capitalist buzzword and cause you can might imagine. So, you know, on the one hand, we have this really evil nihilistic agenda that wants to tear down freedom, industry, business, capitalism, economic growth. And that would be bad enough if it was just advocating really bad ideas. Um, but it's actually worse because as bad as their agenda is, I mean, they would have a right to advocate it. But now they're actually resorting, increasingly resorting to criminal activity to promote their ideas. So, you know, we've talked about uh, Extinction Rebellion in the UK and other uh, parts of the globe. Well, the latest thing that we, here, here's just a few uh, stories that I saw recently. So one is you had some climate protesters who were going to try to use drones to bring flights to a halt in Heathrow Airport in UK. And thankfully this didn't happen and, and they were arrested. Um, but, I mean, you can see how besides... Uh, bringing flights to a halt, flying drones into flight airspace is probably a uh, really bad idea. Yesterday, uh, on Monday, in Washington, D.C., a bunch of climate protesters actively shut down traffic throughout the city. And as many people have pointed out, you know, this, this really didn't harm the people that they said they wanted to harm. You know, if you're, if you're a... Uh, hydrocarbon executive or any of these kind of like dc insiders you know it's not a big deal to work from home uh, or get to the office a little bit late you know but if you are paid by the hour making minimum wage then you know that can be catastrophic but no it's they they are going to deprive people of their right to use fossil fuels and they're going to deprive people of their right even to get to work and here's an example that actually was good and I'd like to see more of, not what the protesters did, but the response, which is in Houston, climate change protesters shut down the largest U.S. energy export port for a day by dangling from a bridge. And I mentioned a few weeks ago a new law in Texas where it was a felony to disrupt energy pipelines and ports. Well, 31 of those protesters now face up to $10,000 fine and two years in prison if convicted of these felonies. And the government's considering, the Texas government and I think the federal government as well, are considering even more charges. Uh, one thing I want to stress about this, I, I think in all of these cases, these are criminal actions and they should be treated as criminal actions. And organizations that advocate and plan these actions should be treated as criminal organizations. And I say that as somebody who is an uncompromising 100% supporter of free speech without exceptions. The key issue is that actions are like this are not speech. When you use compulsion, when you stop people from physically moving to work or to home or wherever they're going about their business, when you stop uh, businesses from being able to engage in legal activities by interfering with their ability to transport the energy that we need. When you fly into airspace and stop flights, let alone risk even hurting or killing people, these are all actions. And your right to communicate ideas, that just protects your ability to persuade. It doesn't give you license to use force. Like you can't just go around and basically say something that would be criminal if I just did it for kicks. Well, I have an ideological reason so that that's my freedom of expression. No, your freedom of expression protects your ability to use 
to communicate ideas, not to engage in compulsion against people. And so I think, you know, Texas is taking a really hard line against this, and they should, because the these are just trial balloons. And the more that these protesters can get away with it and they get a slap on the wrist, the more we're going to see of it. And it can, I mean, the, it doesn't take a genius to figure out where that ends up over time. Uh, Stefan, I don't, I don't know what's the situation in Germany. Any, how, uh, what was the state of the protests last weekend? And have you seen any of these kind of actual kind of criminal sorts of protests in your neighborhood? Yeah, so there were in the in the usual larger cities there were some protests. Uh, I think Germany is a is a leader in that in the European context at least, and there was also something like traffic blocking and, and things like that going on. And what I noticed, um, at least on social media in the German social media realm, um, a lot of politicians attacked the police that did something against the protesters that were actively, as you said, you know, exercising force and violence against others by blocking traffic and things like that. And they, it's probably a much bigger problem than in the United States. Uh, there's certainly nobody debating uh, increasing the uh, the criminal justice code uh, to to get this kind of punishment and. One of the big issues in Germany is the de-escalation by the justice system. It's not just a problem with the climate protests; it's also a problem with like Antifa, uh, you know, rioting in the streets and and this kind of thing. Um, so th this is really, I think, one needs to take a hard line where force of this kind is involved. And I think you're absolutely right that, you know, de-escalation tactics and not punishing people who offended, uh, sort of, these offenses, um, not punishing them is just encouraging them. And so you have to see that their narrative amongst themselves is, okay, this is the issue of our lifetime. This is a moral issue. We are essentially fighting our Hitler of our generation and the gloves come off and everything goes. And I think an intellectual society ruled by laws uh, should fight that um, decisively and make clear this is, you know, here's a rule of law and there's a, there's a difference between, you know, forcing your way and arguing your way and uh, you can't cross that line. I think that's quite important. And I think Germany is, the German governments of various levels are failing in this regard. Um, so we've heard a lot about uh, sort of these fire sales policies. You know, we have 12 years or 11 years now left um, to do something on climate and uh, uh, we're in a sort of a frenzy to implement some policies, do something, or we should have started 30 years ago. These are the, the typical themes. And I want to share um, some of the framework that helped me think about this kind of strategic policies thing, and um, which argues against that, because the notion is that the earlier you start, the better, but that's not always the best course of action. And so my analogy comes uh, from space exploration of all things. And uh, so here's a scenario for you. Um, so let's suppose we, w we found another planet similar to Earth where probably human life uh, can be sustained. And we want to explore that, but it's quite a distance uh, to reach that planet. And we want to tr uh, get a get a explorer crew there to find out you know what are the conditions can we really send people there and colonize this planet and so let's say our starship columbus one um, should be started soon and we are considering you know is this really a good investment will this do the job and we have the technology we can reach probably one percent of light speed and we would need 100 years to bring our crew there. Um, so we can accelerate the spaceship to 1% of light speed, and then it will travel for about 100 years and then reach Earth 2. And, you know, 
this is a long-term strategic project similar to you know uh, influencing climate in the ways proposed today but now there's a problem because this is a great expense uh, we need to in invest a lot of money in this and uh, so is this the right time to do this? Is this the right level of technology we have? That's a, that's a big question. So we could end up, or we could estimate that 50 years down the road, so when Columbus 1 is halfway to the other planet, um, we have developed technology that can reach three times uh, the original um, speed of, of Columbus 1. And Columbus 2, the next mission, would then, you know, 50 years down the road actually reached the planet first if it started 50 years after Columbus 1. So, and it would have all kinds of advantages. At a minimum, we would get the deal, the job done at lower cost, but we would probably also have, you know, shorter, shorter travel time, which means the crew has a higher probability of actually surviving and doing the job. And we have better technologies in all kinds of realms. So, we have a greater chance at success and we are, it makes no sense in this scenario to actually start Columbus 1 if we have a high degree of certainty that Columbus 2 will actually have that higher speed technology. So the way this works is that Columbus 2 would then have a better propulsion system to accelerate to 3% of, of light speed and even if it started only 50 years later would actually arrive first. Right? So. And this analogy translated into a climate policy would be something like, yeah, what do we really need to replace fossil fuels if CO2 emission reduction is really the only way out of this, right? Because that, that's what's proposed. I don't believe in it, but let's think about this for a moment. So we would have to have, by the end of, the, of this century or late in this century, maybe 50 years down the road, maybe 70 years down the road, we would need some real replacement technology that could actually reduce CO2 emissions to zero. So fossil fuel use and other technologies to zero. And we've seen what happened to early movers like Germany. There's a lot of, of expense early on and not a lot of success. We are really struggling to reach even weak climate goals, as we've discussed before in this episode. Um, but we are, we are sort of failing and we, because we're insisting on, you know, using solar winds and battery cars and so on and so forth. And we, we insist on installing them early on. You know, we cannot wait. We only have 10 years left and so on. But that's not really the problem. The problem is how do we achieve this reduction goal late century? How do we get to zero after 2050? Something like that. And so the, the act early approach isn't actually always the right strategy. Very often it makes a lot of sense to wait, develop your technology, improve your technology, and then make sure that you're doing the right moves. So we don't know yet, you know, maybe it's all in nuclear technology that can do the job. Maybe it's geoengineering that can do the job. Maybe adaptation is really the only option, right? And so waiting has a lot of benefit, and not only in the economic sense, but also um, in getting the job actually done. Like it's, it's often much better to wait a bit and improve your starting position and then find out, yeah, what is actually doing the job? And what we are doing right now, what our governments are doing right now is um, putting all our eggs in the failure basket. They are insisting on solar and wind and battery cars and so on and implementing them early when they are not very good. And, and cannot even replace um, um, fossil fuels. And so this is an absolutely wrong approach. It's almost as if someone warns this spaceship uh, in, its, uh, in this uh, analogy to fail. They don't, they don't want the crew to arrive. They insist on ba using bad technology instead of taking a much safer road to, to the actual goal. So even if you agree with a climate catastrophe scenario like 20, late 21st century and beyond, even then you would have to consider, yeah, do we actually have the level of technology to make it happen? And, you know, when can we expect to be in a starting position where we can actually act on this? 
And I think it's it's quite revealing that policymakers and advocates are always insisting on the on the sort of worst technologies available, and always insisting on keeping keeping on doing the same failures again and again. And um, if if they were serious about uh, like Greta Thunberg uh, talking about mass extinction events and so on, we would really be, have to be serious about getting the job done with the right technology. And this is not the time to decide that. 2019 is not, not the correct starting point in, you know, pushing for one certain technology uh, to do the job, like solar, solar, wind and batteries and so on, and exclude something like nuclear or geoengineering and so on. It's, it's, and this analogy really helped me uh, thinking about this kind of strategic goal, like what's is this really is this a real thing when someone has this fire sale approach? So the deal ends this evening. So you better don't go home to your family to discuss your options, right? It's just they want to push through a certain policy no matter what, and uh, so the climate advocate Greta Thunberg is actually a good symbol for that because. She doesn't comprehend what the the policy. The, she doesn't even propose a real policy, and she doesn't comprehend what this entails. And but she wants us to act yesterday, and and this is this is the opposite of a prudent approach, in my view. Yeah, well, I mean the but that's why I think it, I, mean, I I agree with everything you said. I really like that analogy, and I mean I think a theme that's come through in this episode is just you can't make any sense of what the catastrophists in the green movement more broadly you can't make any sense of what their demands are and what they're doing if you're seeing it through the lens of an attempt to solve a real problem like this is if you what it would look like to solve a real problem is like what you're saying or i mean you know we've talked about bill gates and how he thinks about these problems um the only way you can understand it is that this is a power grab by people who hate capitalism and industry and freedom and and if, if that's what you're doing, then frenzied is good. Like you want action now and you want massive action now. During the financial crisis, I forget who it was. It might have been, was it Cass Sunstein? Um, no, not Cass Sunstein. Who became the mayor of Chicago? Ra uh, Rahm Emanuel. Uh, don't let a crisis go to waste. And that's in a crisis, you can act really quickly. You can take over a lot of power. And one of the things that happens when you have a frenzied grab for power is by the time any person can rationally understand and respond to one of those things, there's 10 more in progress. And so it becomes very dispiriting and people trying to fight for freedom can just give up in exhaustion and not know where to go and what to do. And I think you're already seeing that in the area of energy. I mean, I've talked to a lot of you know, hydrocarbon companies, and they feel like, you know, all right, we take, you know, what happened in Colorado, it's like, oh, man, we invested millions and millions and millions, and we defeat Proposition 112, which is going to be this catastrophic uh, restriction on fracking. And then, okay, you know, now we have a, a year or two to regroup until the next round of fighting. And then instantly, the, you know, new Colorado government just shoves through a bunch of killer things. And it's, you get exhausted and uh, you can't mount a real defense. And that's why it's so crucial to draw the line in the sand early, that you have to resist when it's easy to resist before you have a, an opposition that has the capability to act in a frenzied way. And, you know, we didn't do that with climate. And particularly if you think about what the, what the hydrocarbon industry did mostly just kept its head down and mouth shut and um the, the and not that it's totally on them i mean i think that you know there is not a lot of intellectual opposition uh or certainly not sufficient when it when it could have been most um most impactful and so then you know that that itself this observation can be pessimistic and dispiriting but i i mean my view is that what we're seeing right now is very likely to see the green movement overstep. And what often happens is you get these movements where a, the group will become very empowered and will push and push and push. And then they go too far 
and then they kind of step back for a while, kind of disappear for a while, they quiet down for a while, and then they come back again later. And so it, it does not solve the problem, but it allows, it buys you time to mount a really powerful, confident defense. I don't think we can rely on that. I think you have to, uh, you know, we talked about how the, you know, this upcoming election is going to be really important to stand up and have a, a very hard line response to the people who want to eliminate fossil fuels. Um, but I think, you know, that it will be, it will be very helpful if there's a lull and a chance to uh, have a more kind of concerted longer term effort. Uh, I'll do one more story before we wrap up. Institutional investors now are holding, uh, who hold $11 trillion in assets have um, divested from fossil fuels right now. And by comparison, if you just go back to 2014, the holdings of investors who were made the same divestment commitment was $52 billion. So, you know, this is, I mean, $11 trillion, that's, uh, by one estimate, 16% of total global equity uh, markets. I mean, it's a, it's a big number. Um, financially, for the people making this commitment, it's probably a dumb move. I mean, j- just generally, any active investing strategy is likely to be a loser. But particularly if it's not even attempting to outdo the market, it's just saying that we don't like fossil fuels, so we're not going to invest in them. Um yeah, I mean, for example, so the University of California last week uh, said that it's $13.4 billion, um, what's the word, Dow- uh, endowment will sell all fossil fuel assets by the end of September and that it's $70 billion pension fund will do the same. And now they're pretending that it's all about reducing financial risk. So the Wall Street Journal notes that writing in the Los Angeles Times, the university system's chief investment officer and treasurer, Jagdeep Singh uh, Bakir, and board regents chairman Richard Sherman insisted that, quote, hanging, this is a quote within a quote, hanging on to fossil fuel assets is a financial risk and that such investments, quote, posed a long-term risk to generating strong returns for UC's divest, diversified portfolios. And the Wall Street Journal goes on to point out that um, they quote one consulting firm uh, that while green tech advocates may be able to cherry pick individual years when green energy has outperformed fossil fuels, the long view shows the opposite. And so the organization that they're quoting did a study that found between 2008 and 2018, fossil fuel investments delivered an annual average return of 2.6%. And the green energy funds yielded minus 3.94%. And I've seen other studies that reach similar conclusions you know, when they look backwards at sort of what would have happened if uh, pension funds had divested. They would have inevitably lost a lot of money for pensioners. And Bill Gates actually um, chimed in on the divestment debate recently where he was quoted as saying that divestment to date probably has reduced about zero tons of emissions. It's not like you've capital starved the people making steel and gasoline, he said. I don't know the mechanism of action where divestment keeps emissions from going up every year. I'm just too damn numeric, which is great. Uh, but then the Financial Times, which quoted him, went on to say that activists said arguments against fossil fuel divestment miss a larger point. The idea is not to starve companies of capital, but to remove their social license to operate and make it easier for governments to act on climate issues by breaking the fossil fuel companies' hold on politicians. Well, I mean, that, first of all, if you're uh, California pension or UC, uh, University of California uh, pension or New York public pension, you have no business uh, doing that. And even as an individual, you certainly have the freedom to do that. But I, I mean, that is completely immoral to quote, remove the social license of fossil fuel companies to operate. I mean, that is, it's literally like boycotting an agency that's making the best medicine for fighting cancer, or HIV, or something like that. It's you're fighting the people who are providing the energy that people need to live. And if you're, if you're trying to remove their social license and anything else that makes it harder to operate, um, 
that is really despicable. Like, even if you had the view that, okay, well, we do have to transition away from fossil fuels, this idea of vilifying them um, versus, you know, through divesting from them, like, no, it would be much more your attitude of, like, if, you know, Blockbuster gets outcompeted, uh, you know, you say, all right, well, I'm going to sell my Blockbuster. But, um, I mean, in the case of fossil fuels, if we had to divest, you know, if we transition away from them uh, because they were being, like, banned or something, like, that's a sad, tragic thing, not something to be celebrated and gloated about. And uh, so... I mean, it's not clear what the divestment movement is actually accomplishing, except that they certainly are getting more people on board. And, you know, I think if if your money is wrapped up in one of these divesting organizations, I think it's something, uh, it's certainly something I would be concerned about. Stefan, any thoughts? Yeah, it's sort of the opposite of the right approach. So as Bill Gates uh, said, it's... it's uh... So in the interview, Bill Gates said a little more about, you know, I'm investing in something like nuclear technology and so on to actually find an, a viable alternative. And then we can do that. And I, I think this is, a, this is a crucial part here where you can divest all you want, even if you could somehow financially uh, hurt these companies we need them they are they are the basis of our economy and there is no viable replacement at least in the short term and so let's let's assume we would find something like uh, making nuclear more viable that could actually replace a lot of fossil fuels and outcompete them economically then that would to ha would have to happen first you can't just say oh we'll just you know drop the capital on fossil fuels be before we have built the nuclear reactors to replace them that's a totally immoral and nonsensical approach but of course they use this as sort of a propaganda tool to you know yeah as they say uh, revoke the social license to operate so they want to demonize fossil fuels long before we can we have something to replace them with and that's a really really anti-energy and ultimately anti-human policy all right that's the show for this week if you have any questions comments love mail or hate mail you can email me don Watkins at don at industrialprogress.net also if you have any interest in a speech by alex or anyone else from our team you can email me at don at industrialprogress.net if you need any help with messaging and you want to consider working with us, email me and we can set up a call to talk about what your goals are and how we might be able to help. And as always, the number one thing you can do to support the show is subscribe to our newsletter at alexepsteinlist.com. All right. I hope everybody enjoyed this episode and we will be back ne next week with some more great topics. Until then, it is, this has been Dom Watkins and Stefan Henna on Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.